Okay, we're going to get started uh, this afternoon. So we are fortunate enough to have with us today Dr. King. Uh, Dr. King is a assistant professor of both medicine and pharmacy. He is also the director of the Maryland Poison Control Center, and he's going to give us a talk today on uh, toxicology and toxicology specifically in the ICU. Good afternoon, and I'm glad you're all uh, sitting back there because I'm on droplet ISO with a, a cold. So, um, yeah, so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. So I do have a few slides for poll everywhere if you've got your phones, but otherwise, um, it's going to be relatively rapid. Um, these are things that some of them are very common, and you'll see them often. Some of them are not so common, but but you should know about them because they can be severe. But this is the best uh, I, the best shot I can do at the generic toxicology talk because there's a whole bunch to talk about. I would say is if you like this or if you like this stuff and you want to get you know more time with it, um, come talk with me and, and maybe we can work out a um, tox rotation at the poison center. Um, but be aware that this is based off practice guidelines and more commonly than that, stuff we do because there aren't practice guidelines for much of the management of tox patients where we don't have randomized control trials. We have the like the case series of 10 people uh, who received this therapy back in 1985. So take it with a, a grain of salt. Um, so what is poisoning? Uh, let's ask uh, the great uh, Philippus Aurelius Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, a.k.a. Paracelsus, the godfather of modern toxicology. Uh, he was a professor for one year, I think, during which he burned all of his students' books in a bonfire, and then later he died in a bar fight. But he was the first guy, um, you know, around uh, the uh, 16th century to figure out that the dose makes the poison. And, you know, what is poisonous? Everything is poisonous, right? You're, you're, what you're eating right now is poisonous if you ate enough of it. If you drank, you know, four, uh, four gallons of water rather than a bottle of water, you might develop uh, toxicity. If you drank um, 10 to 12 liters of Coca-Cola per day, um, you might show up hospitalized with paralysis due to hypokalemia. I know that because it's a case report. Go search Coca-Cola and kangaroos in Lancet. It's a great story. Um, but, you know, I'm a medical toxicologist. There are a few of us around. There are four of us at UMMC. Um, there are maybe six or seven of us in the city, and um, we're all happy to, to see your patients. Uh, we see patients in person here. We uh, don't have an uh, outpatient clinic here, although um, there are octox clinics in the city. And then most of what we do is delivered through the poison center, where folks will call for, with uh, poisoning cases, and, and we give, do our best to give advice. Um, and if you if you were to work at an, a single institution, even the largest institutions don't really see enough patients to sustain um, a full time med tox uh, uh, practice for for one person, unless you add something else like addiction medicine. But we hear about enough patients through the poison center such that we can kind of maintain our skills. Um, we're going to talk about these toxidromes here, and uh, I'm going to focus first on the three agitated toxidromes up front. We'll go through the others, then we'll hit kind of a potpourri of various tox topics. So I apologize for the speed. I'm happy to share slides afterward, and this will be recorded anyway. So here's your case, and this will be a uh, poll everywhere question. 23-year-old woman was brought to the ED by EMS with confusion and agitation. Earlier that evening, she took some pills to get ready to party, but when she arrives, she's very agitated. Two police officers have to hold her down. Um, she got Ativan and Haldol, but it's not working too well. Her temperature is elevated. Her heart rate and blood pressure are elevated. She is confused. Pupils are 7 millimeters. She's sweating profusely. Her bowels are active. There's no clonus. She has a lactic acid and uh, some rhabdo. Um, so the question is, which toxidrome is this? Yeah, this is sympathomimetic toxidrome. Um, so in general, sympathomimetic toxidromes are uh, characterized by folks who have norepinephrine and epinephrine excess. They're tachycardic, 
hypertensive. Most of them will have dopamine excess as well, so they'll have paranoia. Um, severe agitation tends to be the norm. Um, uh, they're often sweating profusely. And uh, like the other agitated toxidromes, they'll have hypertension, tachycardia, and medriasis. Um, like the uh, the other two, serotonin syndrome and, and to a lesser extent anticholinergic toxidrome, the, they can go down the kind of final toxic common pathway leading to the things you want to avoid in red, seizures, tachyarrhythmias, hyperthermia, and rhabdomyolysis. So all of your treatment for this is going to be uh, devoted toward keeping the patient from developing these or if they've developed those, uh, minimizing the impact of them. Um, let's do some chemistry, right? You thought you'd escaped it after organic chem back in college? No, let's pretend to be organic chemists. So this is phenylethylamine. It makes the backbone of, say, all of our catecholamines, like dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. If you were to um, methylate norepinephrine, you'd make epinephrine. Similarly, if you were to methylate amphetamine, you'd make methamphetamine. And this methylation makes it a bit more nonpolar, which leads to a greater degree of the drug crossing the blood-brain barrier and greater systemic toxicity. Um, the main difference between amphetamine and norepinephrine is this methyl group right here, which blocks metabolism by monoamine oxidase. So if you will go through a number of synthetic amphetamine derivatives, and you'll often see this here, because without it, the drugs often have a relatively short half-life. Um, you snort meth, but you give norepinephrine by drip because it has a very short half-life. Um, if you were to go to Yemen, um, you might join this man in chewing cot, which contains caffeine and cathinone, which are mild stimulants. If you were going to take that cathinone and do a couple chemical alterations, more methylation in the lab, you'd make mephedrone, which is the most commonly used bath salt. Um, these were sold as bath salts, not because they have anything to do with baths. Um, occasionally, we will have a 15-year-old call the poison center after they've snorted some Epsom salts and their nose is burning. Um, but because there are laws that allow folks who make drugs to get around um, this compound being illegal if it is labeled as not for human consumption. So you call it bath salts or plant food or herbal incense, like most of our synthetic cannabinoids are called. Um, this is MDMA, or methylene diamine methamphetamine. And if you look at this portion of the, the uh, drug here, that's methamphetamine. Adding this dimethoxy group adds serotonergic activity. So like most of the um, synthetic amphetamine derivatives, MDMA is a serotonergic amphetamine, and toxicity can give you both toxidromes or an overlap of serotonin syndrome and sympathomimetic toxidrome. These are some more colorful-looking synthetic amphetamine derivatives. The 2C series um, have been around since the 1970s um, when they were synthesized by Papa Sasha, who, is a, who was a former Merck biochemist um, and went out and synthesized hundreds, if not thousands, of compounds that he later gave to himself and wrote about the effects they had and also how to make them. Um, this is periodically used um, by folks um, who uh, are looking for something um, other than MDMA as a serotonergic amphetamine derivative. This is NBOM. In the early 2000s, this was somebody's PhD thesis. He was looking to radio-label 5-HT2A receptors and found something that was a, uh, an agonist at microgram quantities. What that means is that it's also an agonist that gets you high, like LSD, um, and this is sold sometimes as synthetic LSD because it is so potent that 50, 100 micrograms that can be absorbed through blotter paper will be enough to give you uh, sympathomimetic and serotonergic toxicity or what the users are going for, hallucinations. Uh, this is bromo dragonfly, which I included mostly because it really does look like a dragonfly. But there are hundreds of these these compounds, um, which is one of the reasons why we don't test for them. Um, you'd need an assay for each one individually, and it's prohibitively expensive for most labs to maintain that kind of capability. These are synthetic cannabinoids. This is uh, Delta-9-THC, the only non-synthetic cannabinoid up here. This is what's in marijuana or cannabis. <coughs> 
But if you were going to go out and buy some Scooby Snacks, Crazy Monkey, K2, Spice, etc., you might get one of these compounds. If you bought it in 2010, you might get JWH-018, one of the earliest synthetic cannabinoids, um, which was made in the 1990s um, by a guy named John W. Huffman, whose research was later hijacked, um, uh, uh, that people took his patents and went out and synthesized these things. Um, the New York zombie outbreak was caused by AMB Fubinaca. Um, these drugs have confusing and, frankly, very poorly understood mechanisms of action that involve presynaptic release of various neurotransmitters. Some of them will give you toxicity like um, serotonin syndrome or sympathomimetic toxidrome. Some of them will give you a sedative hypnotic toxidrome. It is not fully understood uh, how. Um, you all know powder cocaine and crack cocaine um, because you, you may see them around the city. Please do not go out and see them around the city. That is my standard disclaimer. Um, but if you wanted to make this into this, please do not do that. You would take um, you know, bicarb and you would bake this in an oven making crack rock. Um, here, again, some bath salts uh, sold as various not-for-human-consumption contents. Wink, wink, know what I mean, nudge, nudge. Um, originally, they were sold at 7-Eleven and other convenience stores like head shops. Um, this is how drug users know what they're getting. Um, if McDonald's doesn't work for you, you might go for... Um, you know, Calvin Klein um, or email or one of the varieties, but drug users will routinely um, stamp their drugs things. Unfortunately, you can't trust the drug users. Some of the uh, drug makers, some of them have been known to take drugs like heroin or fentanyl and press them with um, pill markers that are used to mimic Oxycontin because you get more money for Oxycontin than you do for heroin or fentanyl. Uh, this is how you make meth. Forget Breaking Bad. You go buy your 99 cent soda. You've got your, you know, two, uh, your two liter bottles and you take red phosphorus from matches, kerosene, hydrochloric acid, and pseudoephedrine and you shake and bake. Please do not do this, um, unless you want to end up in the bird unit, which is, um, one of the complications we see from meth manufacture. These are flammable uh, and explosive substances. Um, this is a mitochondrion. You all remember this. Well, now you'll you'll um, you know be reminded of how uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation works. So, uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation is the pathophysiology that underlies much of the common final common pathway toxicity of these drugs, whether it's rhabdo, whether it's multi-organ failure, whether it's lactic acidosis, whether it's shock. Normally, the electron transport chain or mitochondrial respiratory chain metabolizes NADH and FAD into um, NAD+, and pushes hydrogens across the intermembrane uh, inter, uh, space by doing so. The hydrogen goes across, makes a gradient um, with a hydrogen concentration of about 1,000 to 1. The pH here is 4. The pH in the mitochondrial matrix in the middle here is 7. So there's this concentration gradient which drives synthesis of ATP. ATP is made goes out to the cell, and that's how we're all powered. If you take an uncoupler, such as salicylates, such as sympathomimetic agents, these bind to a pore which allows the hydrogens to cross the intermembrane space without making ATP. The movement of one substance to another from high to low concentration releases energy in the form of heat. This is how brown fat works. It keeps babies warm and keeps bears warm in the winter. Um, but if this process goes unchecked, you become somewhat of an anaerobe. So you develop a lactic acidosis as well as multi-organ failure because now your cells don't have enough ATP to do things like squeeze your heart or your blood vessels um, or work normally if you're a neuron, etc. So how do we treat these folks? Well, we want to control agitation decrease sympathomimetic output, reduce serotonergic tone, and address all those end-organ toxicities we mentioned. And to do so, we rely on the cornerstone of the toxicologist's friend, GABA agonists, benzodiazepines and uh, propofol barbiturates accomplish all of these goals. Um, so this is the cornerstone of management of sympathomimetic toxidrome. You can't get the drug out of the patient's system. There's no way to dialyze out you know, um, methamphetamine or to remove norepinephrine, but if you add a competing drug which decreases secretion of it, you might you know, lessen some of these toxicities. So 
How do you treat these folks? GABA agonists, if the patient is you know, agitated to the point where they're uncontrollable, sedation may be the best thing for them. Um, you know, you want to be able to evaluate them, decrease rhabdo, check for compartment syndrome because the patient will be too agitated to tell you that they're having ischemia and they're gluteus and they need to be um, taken to surgery. Um, if you are using cocaine and you have a wide QRS, that is due to cardiac sodium channel blockade. To overcome that, we give sodium bicarb um, to decrease the drug's binding to um, the cardiac sodium channels. If they're severely hypertensive, in cocaine and others, you want to avoid giving beta blockers as you might uh, worsen hypertension paradoxically with unopposed alpha-1 agonism. So give short-acting vasodilators. I'm a big nitro fan of these folks, especially you know things that cause vasospasm. Um, then uh, fentolamine, good luck finding that. Um, it's rarely, um, you know, stocked in many hospitals nowadays, nicardipine, et cetera. Um, if you have a patient who has these choreiform movements, crack dancing, you can give Haldol to, to treat that. Um, and if you have a severely hyperthermic patient, temperature above 40, cooling them should be one of the things you do as part of their management. Um, and most cooling is effectively achieved not by doing, like, the ice, ice packs in the pits, Less by doing spraying them, more by immersing them in cold in, uh, cold water if you are able to. Um, so we'll we'll stop for questions at the end because there's a lot to go through. Next question, which will probably not work: Twenty four year old man presented to the ED after a venlafaxine overdose with agitation and confusion. He had an elevated temperature, tachycardia, hypertension, dilated pupils, sweating profusely, and lower extremity hyperreflexia and clonus. He becomes increasingly agitated and is intubated. Chest X-ray reveals an infiltrate concerning for aspiration pneumonitis. You appropriately recognize that he also has serotonin syndrome. And since this doesn't work, I'm going to give you five drugs, and you tell me if you can if the, if uh, these would be drugs that you could administer to this patient without concern of worsening serotonin toxicity. Meparidine. Could you give this to the patient? No, no, that's, you'd recreate the Libby's Zion case from the 80s, which is why all house staff have the 80-hour rule, at least initially. Um, how about linazolid? No, that's an MAOI. How about fentanyl? This is probably not your best choice. Most synthetic opioids are serotonergic, um, although less so than meparidine, say. How about hydromorphone? That's probably okay. Opiates and semi-synthetic opioids are not particularly serotonergic. So why do I bring this up? If this person's very agitated and you put them on a high-dose fentanyl drip and found that they became more agitated, it may be because their serotonin syndrome is worsening, and there are cases of this all through the literature. Um, so serotonin syndrome comes from the excessive stimulation of 5-HT1A and 2A serotonergic receptors. This comes from combinations of serotonergic meds chronically or a serotonergic med, one or more serotonergic meds taken in overdose. As a toxicologist, I see the latter a lot more often. Um, hyperreflexia and clonus are nearly pathognomonic. If you do not see them um, and your patient doesn't have a really good reason for not having them, such as, say, existing paralysis, you should strongly consider another diagnosis. Um, I took this off a drug form. Anyone recognize what this is a picture of? Robo-tripping, yes, it's a robot tripping. Um, most commonly accompli you know, accomplished not from the guafenicin in robitussin, but dextromethorphan, which is serotonergic as well as an NMDA receptor antagonist. So serotonin syndrome has a lot of the same things that you'd find in sympathomimetic toxidrome. Tachycardia, hypertension, agitated delirium, tremors, sweating profusely. What you see that differentiates it is clonus and hyperreflexia. You can absolutely have overlap toxidromes. Many substances are both serotonergic and sympathomimetic. To an extent, it doesn't matter unless you have an ongoing serotonergic drug that you'd want to stop um, because the final common pathway is the same. Seizures, tachyarrhythmias, rhabdo, uncoupling. Um, there's an excellent New England Journal article that's sent out. I, I won't belabor this picture, but you should go look at this picture. Um, these are the Hunter uh, criteria for serotonin syndrome. The Hunter Area Toxicology Service 
is a tox, uh, you know, med tox service in where else? Australia, where all the venomous and poisonous things are. And they took their cases and were able to derive these criteria. Um, and if you'll look at them, you'll see they largely focus on whether or not the patient has clonus. If they lack clonus, inducible clonus, you'd want to look for tremor and hyperreflexia. In the absence of that, it's exceedingly unlikely that you have serotonin syndrome. When you're assessing these patients for clonus, stick your hand under the knee, push on their ankle. It's much more prominent in the lower extremities, and um, it shouldn't be subtle. Um, you can also test for hyperreflexia. My hyperreflexia test for the serotonin syndrome patient is to take my clumsy fingers and just tap. And if they if they're hyperreflexic to that, then they're almost certainly hyper you know, uh, you know three or four plus reflexes. Um, you may not see clonus if your patient is severe enough that they have lower extremity stiffness. And sometimes there you start giving that patient benzos or propofol and you see clonus start to develop as they become less severe. So lower extremity stiffness is also you know, something you should consider serotonin syndrome for if the clinical picture is right. So here are some serotonergic drugs. I will not belabor them. Um, uh, you know, you'll be able to see the slides later. I'll just point out several things. All antidepressants are serotonergic, which makes sense, some more than others. Um, all ser uh, synthetic opioids are serotonergic in one mechanism or another, ranging from the very serotonergic of meparidine to the not very serotonergic of methadone to the, you know, kind of mild to moderate serotonergic activity of fentanyl. Um, tramadol is fairly serotonergic. Uh, MAOIs um, tend, are notorious for worsening serotonin syndrome. In the ICU, linazolid is your biggest culprit there. And um, lithium is mildly serotonergic, but you know, severe lithium toxicity has a lot of overlap with serotonin syndrome. How do you treat them? Benzos. Your board question will say ciproheptadine, but if you ask nearly any toxicologist in clinical practice, we only use those for the mild cases or as adjunct therapy. Ciproheptadine is an antihistamine which is anticholinergic, and it's only available orally. If you have to give a lot to these patients, you might make them anticholinergic, and you can only give it enterally, as opposed to your serotonin syndrome patient where you can push some lorazepam or, or um, you know, actually I'm using more and more bedaz for these folks, and see a response more rapidly. Um, refractory patients, phenobarb can be very useful. Um, we had a case series when I was at UVA of folks who got Presidex, I would caution you in saying it does work as an adjunct only. It will not stop your patients from seizing, so please do not just give Presidex to the serotonin syndrome patient. They will look calmer, but they will still be at risk for seizures. Um, but ciproheptidine may be your board question answer. In reality, benzos are probably your first-line therapy. So we've already talked about Scooby Snacks, Crazy Monkey, Mr. Happy, Spice, K2. These are all synthetic cannabinoids that act through really strange um, uh, pharmacology. THC is a partial agonist at the CB1 receptor, which is primarily a presynaptic receptor. It does a bunch of stuff that I, every time I review it, I become more confused because there are more data coming out all the time. Some of the vasospasm is probably not even mediated by that. It's more icosanoid receptors, and it's just kind of a mess. But what you see clinically is a variety of toxidromes that most commonly share a lot with sympathomimetic toxidrome and serotonin syndrome, but sometimes have a lot in common with um, sedative hypnotic toxidrome, like a benzo or other GABA agonist overdose. Um, tachycardia, hypertension, paranoia, and red eye are often prominent. But then they do some things that marijuana doesn't do, at least outside of very large pediatric overdoses where we actually see sedation on the side note. Um, they cause vasospasm. So I've seen a STEMI due to synthetic cannabinoids, and then they got cath, had normal caths. We've seen strokes. Um, they can cause non-resolving psychosis, probably the most frightening side effect where someone uses them, develops paranoia that doesn't completely go away. And you have to question, was this person destined to develop this from schizophrenia or did the drug fundamentally change your neurochemistry? We don't have an answer to that. Some of the 2C agents, the synthetic amphetamine derivatives, have been known to cause this too. Um, how do you treat them? You treat them symptomatically. If they look like serotonergic and sympathomimetic toxicity, you'd probably use GABA agonists. If they are sedative hypnotic toxicity, you would treat them supportively, you know, you know control their airway if you need it, um, hydrate them, give them meds for behavior control. We don't have an uh, elegant pharmacological way to antagonize them as of the moment, so, you know, stay tuned. 
The biggest problem with studying these drugs is that they are cycled every few months to stay ahead of drug laws. If you make AMB Fubinaca illegal, that's fine. I will add, um, say, an acetyl group onto it, and now it's something completely different that I am selling under the same brand name. So, so um, they also do weird immune-like things in that they can cause acute interstitial nephritis as a kidney doc. I find that absolutely fascinating. Uh, this is an example. This is an ad for the company NMS. That's a little old at this point, but it shows you the concept from 2010, where one synthetic cannabinoid accounted for 70% of the product, to 2012, where it was 10% or less. So these drugs change rapidly, and this process is still ongoing. Um, and teenagers are using these. Um, you know, it's it's not uncommon. This 11% of high school students about five years ago had said they'd at least tried synthetic cannabinoids. Um, there are other emerging drugs of abuse. The West Coast is seeing methamphetamine again, and they're also starting to see ketamine. And the neat thing you might not know about chronic ketamine users is that they may develop bladder dysfunction, as ketamine is a glycine antagonist. And um, they may up, end up with permanent need to do in-and-out catheters um, due to bladder dysfunction. Um, more toxidromes. 22-year-old man brought in by family, intermittently drowsy and agitated. His heart, he's tachycardic, he's hypertensive, his pupils are 6 millimeters. His mucous membranes, unlike the last two, are dry. His bowel sounds are hypoactive. He has a distended bladder that you palpate and you put in a foley and 700 mils of urine comes in. He keeps reaching for your badge and saying, which toxidrome is this? Anticholinergic toxidrome. So your classic hot as a hair comes from hyperthermia. But unlike the sympathomimetics and serotonin syndrome patients that get uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, hyperthermia due to anticholinergics is due to the inability to sweat as you know, muscarinic uh, receptor antagonists remove most of your ability to sweat, um, you start to vasodilate your skin and get red as a beet to try to control temperature, but it doesn't work so well. So they're often mildly hyperthermic, 37, 7, 38, 1. Dry as a bone from that inability to sweat. Blind as a bat from madriasis. Mad as a hatter from your anticholinergic delirium which characteristically has Lilliputian hallucinations. So you see small objects. I had one patient who was mostly presented preserved mentation, but she kept seeing a fork in front of her and reaching for it while we were talking. Um, and um, uh, full as a flask, again, that bladder distension. And that bladder distension may cause agitation that your patient's unable to tell you about. So um, if you uh, most of our anticholinergic patients are from first-generation antihistamines, uh, we're currently managing one at another hospital who claimed he took 15 grams of diphenhydramine, I don't know if he did or not, but he's, he's still you know, pretty symptomatic a couple days later. Um, or you can go out to the field. Uh, there's some, I think, a few blocks from here. There's a parking lot where jimson weed grows. Each one of these seeds has the equivalent of 0.1 milligrams of atropine. So if you wanted to, uh, to uh, eat these seeds, please do not eat these seeds, you could have prolonged anticholinergic toxidrome. Or if you were smarter, it's not that much smarter, you would brew tea out of them such that you don't have the seeds sitting in your stomach and leaching out atropine and hyoscyamine. Um, so you manage these folks not only with drugs for agitation, where I would still use benzos as first line um, unless you're absolutely certain the patient ingested an anticholinergic, um, in which case you could consider physostigmine. The concern with physostigmine is that if your patient didn't you know, ingest an anticholinergic and you're not familiar with the drug, it's a pretty rapid-onset drug, and it's pretty potent, so they might develop cholinergic toxicity and start wheezing in front of you. Um, there's also a um, there's something we refer to in tox as physostigma. In the 1970s, there were a few cases of asystole after use of physostigmine for patients who developed TCA toxicity, and thus anyone who has sodium channel blockade with a wide QRS, most toxicologists will not give it to. But the drug fell far out of favor at that point. I think it's useful for selected patients, but I would use it in combination with talking with the poison center. Um, it is very short-lived, so if you're giving it, um, it'll wear off in about 15, 30 minutes. If you choose to keep giving it, um, you might need a drip. Um, 
but then consider your physical things, your quiet room. These patients are much more amenable to redirection than your sympathomimetic patient. Make sure they haven't had urinary distension, etc. We move from the agitated toxic rooms to some more. So a 20-year-old uh, woman drug abuser, she comes in with mild bradycardia, respiratory of 6, her pupils are pinpoint, her lungs are clear, her abdomen is soft, hypoactive bowel sounds, and her uh, QRS is narrow. Which toxidrome is this that you probably see pretty often? Opioid toxidrome, yeah. So it's a few pictures. Um, so uh, you're likely familiar with track marks, which are you've sclerosed one area along a vein, so you continue along that vein to try to get more. Um, subcutaneous abscesses are very common for folks who abuse drugs. Uh, this was a UVA student who didn't want track marks, so she shot up her axillary vein so folks wouldn't know. Um, this is skin popping. Skin popping is not a sub-Q injection. Skin popping is where you take a needle and you scar up the, kind of scrape the skin there to get a little bleed going, and you inject into that area. So it's somewhere between a sub-Q and an IV injection. Um, and it, as you might imagine, frequently leads to infection. Um, this is a fentanyl patch, which this patient has hidden in a warm, moist, wet place. So if you have a patient come in with opioid toxidrome, do the full body exam. Look under panaces, look under breasts, spread, you know, cheeks, examine every body crevice. Because patients who are in the know will put their, their patches there because they're absorbed better through warm, moist areas. Um, patients will sometimes like get a sweat on and put them in their armpits, etc. Um, this is a patient who repeatedly injected herself, developed SBC syndrome, um, much like folks who've had repeated central lines. Um, you know, people who commonly shot up, shoot up their IJs when they've exhausted everything else can have this happen. Um, how do you treat opioids? As you know, airway is the most important thing to maintain, and you have naloxone. Naloxone is not a perfect drug, but it's a pretty good drug. The major things to worry about are vomiting. And why is that important? Well, what if you're using naloxone to reverse benzos? And you give a whole bunch, and it's not working, and you give more. Now you've given this person who's sedated, maybe not protecting their airway, a bunch of med that will make them vomit. So you know, be aware it's, it's got its toxicities as well. Um, the way which many of us medtoxpost likes to dose it are to take that 0.4 milligram vial, pull up 10 mils, and give a mil at a time. And that's particularly important for long-lasting opioids that might require a naloxone drip because you're going to want to give two-thirds of that effective dose per hour in a drip. And at that effective dose is 0.16, you can get away with a lower drip to start. That's not crucial, but it's, it's, um, it's a nice thing to do. That being said, some of the fentanyl derivatives may require higher doses of naloxone, although that is, frankly, disputed as well. Um, the other reason not to give naloxone in high doses is that if your patient has taken the speedball, heroin, and cocaine, you want to titrate to breathing, not to full awareness, where they can rip off their, their uh, leads and leave AMA, and you just hope that the drug they took has a shorter half-life than the naloxone. If it's heroin, you're probably okay. If it's methadone, you might not. So your naloxone drip, again, start with an hourly infusion of two-thirds of the dose needed to rouse the patient, titrate off as they wake off. If you're in the ICU and you want to clear this person on the floor, they need to be off naloxone for at least four hours. If they are a kidney patient, it's not clear, clear quite how long they might need to be off it. Um, uh, the, the most prolonged overdose case I've seen was a patient uh, with end-stage renal disease who took about 300 milligrams of extended-release morphine, was on a Narcan drip for six days. We'd turn it off, and she'd be fine until 12 hours later when she resedated and required it to come back on. So the half-life is prolonged in renal failure. Just be aware. Um, another toxidrome. A uh, 50-year-old man uh, out in his fields. He was A uh, farmhand was spraying earlier. He didn't know that. Um, so this was a poison center case from a few years ago. He developed cough and wheezing. He comes to the ED. He's crying uncontrollably. He's urinated and defecated on himself. He is bradycardic and hypotensive. His lungs sound wet. He has a seizure, and then he stops moving. What happened? What toxidrome is this? Yeah, so the cholinergic toxidrome. This is likely an organophosphate. Um, and this was actually malathion, which is um, one of the two major organophosphates used in farm use. 
So the cholinergic toxidrome has sludge and the killer bees. Your salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI cramping, and emesis, all of the secretions that can secrete, and your patient feels awful. This is miserable. It does not kill you. The killer bees of bradycardia, bronchorrhea, and bronchospasm can kill you, primarily bronchorrhea and bronchospasm. And your treatment is going to be directed toward making their lungs dry. Um, if it is a centrally acting drug, meaning it can cross the blood-brain barrier, seizures are also a major cause of death, as well as paralysis in a manner similar to non-depolarizing neuromuscular junction agents. You get constant stimulation from acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, and then you stop moving. So if you're that patient who sees stop moving, that does not mean that the seizures stop per se. That he may be in non-convulsive status and just paralyzed and needs continuous EEG. So you treat these patients to drying of secretions. If you talk to people who routinely see organophosphates, um, you know, mostly clinicians in Southern and East Asia, they will tell you that bad cases may require a couple hundred milligrams of atropine. You start out with one, two, four, eight, 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 and you keep going until you get effect. The hospital may run out of atropine. Um, there have been creative ways to, to get around this. One bottle of 1% ophthalmic um, uh, atropine has 150 milligrams in it, so that's something to consider in case you run out. Put a filter on it and cross your fingers. Um, hopefully it won't run out before that. If it is an organophosphate as opposed to a carbamate, which um, reversibly inhibits acetylcholinesterase, which is how this, these drugs work. I'm sorry, I'm going real fast to cover everything. Um, the or the, the uh, carbamates reversibly inhibit it. That's, for example, neostigmine. So you don't need to treat with a drug to avoid irreversible phosphorylation of your acetylcholinesterase for carbamate poisoning. For organophosphate poisoning, these drugs, these compounds will irreversibly phosphorylate your enzyme and then you're stuck till you make more. You need about 20% uh, per day to breathe of pseudocholinesterase activity. You make 0.1% per day. So um, you give pralidoxime to interrupt the formation of uh, an, uh, you know, an irreversible uh, adjunct. Seizures should be treated with very high-dose benzos. Um, we've moved past the toxidrome comp component. Um, I could take maybe one or two questions. Any questions on that whirlwind? Yeah. Some folks use olanzapine, um, I, I, but it's almost always reserved for kind of refractory cases. Um, it, just like ciproheptadine, I think it's it's you could use it as an adjunct. It's just nicer to have a drug that you can titrate IV. Um, you could use IV. You know, if you if you had an atypical, you could try it. Um, I don't know how good that would be at controlling seizures. Is my only concern, but it's a it's a thought. It is done occasionally. You absolutely can. Um, again. Uh, I would worry that these folks might be at risk of seizures, and you could argue back and forth to whether the Presidex alone would control it. Um, you could absolutely use it. Um, I think that because there's extensive clinical experience with benzos, we tend to prefer them. But I wouldn't see any reason why you couldn't use them. And frankly, I commonly use them as an adjunct. I usually just keep the benzos on board besides. Absolutely. Great questions. All right. We move on. 52-year-old man is a known alcoholic. He presents to the ED after being found in the street by the cops. He is confused. He is not answering questions. His temperature is 36. His heart rate is 120. He's hypotensive. He's breathing very rapidly. He is completely disor uh, you know, um, uh, stuporous. His pupils are 7 millimeters and not responsive to light. Head CT shows some midbrain changes. Labs show... He has a severe anion gap acidosis, a very large osmol gap, a normal lactate, a pH of 7. So which, what 
toxins do you think are most likely that what toxin do you think is the most likely cause of this presentation? Yeah, so this is methanol toxicity. And, and uh, the large anion gap and the large osmolar gap keys you into the concern for a toxic alcohol. And the organ-specific toxicity of, of blindness and CNS damage is what keys you into methanol versus, say, ethylene glycol or another. So let's go through these. Um, so this is one of those illegible figures for toxic alcohols. This is from a, a paper we recently put out in one of the kidney journals. You can refer to that if you want. But it goes through there. There are more toxic alcohols other than just methanol and ethylene glycol, but that's what we're going to focus on. The most common toxic alcohol is actually ethanol. It just doesn't give you an acidosis because it's metabolized to acetic acid, and then you take that acetate, run it through the Krebs cycle, and get yourself some bicarb. Um, Methanol is primarily found in the U.S. within windshield washing fluid and commercial solvents. Um, moonshine exposures in the U.S. almost never have methanol. Moonshine exposures in countries where there's a high penalty for use of alcohol um, commonly see methanol. So the country that sees the most methanol poisoning per capita is Iran um, because the, the uh, uh, penalties are much higher for ethanol use, and thus the, the folks who make it can't take as many steps to remove methanol. Um, the specific toxic effects of the toxic metabolites of methanol, formaldehyde and formic acid, in addition to making a lot of acid, um, they're uh, uh, toxic to the mitochondria, particularly the CNS. So you see basal ganglia damage, um, you see blindness, CNS damage, um, and you see, uh, the, the worst cases are the ones where you see bleeding in the putamen. That usually pretends a really bad prognosis, like our prior, our prior patient. Methanol itself is not inebriating. So if a patient comes in, obtunded after methanol, that's a bad thing. Um, they shouldn't be if they just drank methanol. Uh, ethylene glycol, on the other hand, is very inebriating. So people will sometimes drink it um, in order to find an alcohol substitute, but most of the time... It's self-harm from antifreeze and then some other solvents. It is sweet, so children may drink it, dogs may drink it, because it tastes sugary. Um, it's not as toxic as methanol. And in addition to making acid, the toxic metabolite uh, oxalic acid forms crystals with calcium to make calcium oxalate crystals. Most ingestions, you just see those in the renal tubules and AKI, if you see them at all. Um, for more severe uh, late-presenting ethylene glycol cases, they can have these crystals form within cardiac tissue or the CNS, <coughs> places you don't want them. You also see hypocalcemia. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, because um, uh, you bind up a lot of calcium. Sorry, the, the frog in my throat has come to the fore. <coughs> These are calcium oxalate crystals. You see the picket-shaped monohydrates and the envelope-shaped dihydrates. These are the ones that cut up your renal tubules for the most part. Um, so let's say you have this case here. You have a patient who has unexplained acidosis and AKI. Their lactate is 11 when you do it on an ABG. At the same time, you get a venous lactate and a blood you know, a venous stick on <clears throat> a different analyzer, and it's normal. How could this be going on? What's going on here? So this is your lactate gap, where some blood gap analyzers will misuse, uh, misread uh, ethylene glycol metabolites as lactate because they're very chemically similar. Um, and I know for a fact that this happens at UMC because it happened about a week after I came to work here and I got really excited. That's where those crystals are from. <clears throat> so we treat toxic alcohol poisoning with thomepazole, which is a synthetic inhibitor of alcohol dehydrogenase. Ethanol drips are no longer compounded for the most part by major manufacturers. Um, they had a lot of problems and they're not really necessary nowadays. Um, and fomepazole is great if you haven't formed toxic metabolites. If you have, you still want to give it to prevent more from forming, 
but you need to do something to get rid of those toxic metabolites. And if there are enough on board that they are causing organ dysfunction, the answer is typically dialysis. And you'll want to dialyze your patient. Traditionally, it's as long as it takes to remove the toxic alcohol. Talk with me. I'll show you how to calculate that out. Practically, you have to at least remove the anion. And when you're doing dialysis, bear in mind that you want to remove this as soon as possible, particularly for methanol because time is brain. And um, hemodialysis has about five to ten times the dose of CRT. You want to put this patient on hemo at the highest setting possible and extend that hemo as long as you need to. Even if they're hypotensive with a poisoning, if the poisoning is causing the hypotension, I suggest you use hemo, turn up the pressors. <clears throat> so for methanol, um, the Xtrip work group, uh, rec- you know, a, a group of uh, pharmacists, nephrologists, and toxicologists that looks at dialysis and extracoral therapy of poisoning, for any severe symptoms or significant acidosis, you should dialyze. A level above 70, you should dialyze. A level less than that, it won't be too long the patient's in the hospital on famepazole, you can make an argument if it's you know kind of between 50 and 70 because the half-life of methanol after fomepazole is about 50 hours, and it's excreted primarily through breathing it out. It takes a long time. Um, you want to keep going, though, if you dialyze until that methanol level is less than 20, at which point you're okay to stop the fomepazole. Ethylene glycol doesn't have... Uh, any practice guidelines till this November when we're going to Montreal to make some. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the level is frankly unclear because ethylene glycol only has a 17-hour half-life. Um, you could dialyze them or for, you know, kind of moderate poisonings, you could just give them fomepazole and write it out if they don't have an anion, if they haven't built up an anion. If you have N-torgan toxicity or severe acidosis, you should dialyze to lessen the severity of AKI and lower the chance that you're going to develop another organ toxicity. Um, your patient who drinks this stuff will show up here. Uh, if they show up one, uh, a minute after drinking it or a few minutes after drinking it with a high osmolar gap and no anion gap, they could present here hours after drinking it with all of it metabolized and a high anion gap. Um, your board question will probably show up somewhere in the middle. Your patient could be anywhere along the, the, the spectrum. Um, and lastly, I'm just going to refer you to this graph later. Alcoholic ketoacidosis is often real hard to tell from mild toxic alcohol poisoning because it gives you an osmolal gap due to acetone, it gives you an anion gap, and it's often in the same patient population. So frankly, we end up giving a lot of these folks from Mepazol and watching them. So, any questions on toxic alcohols at all? All right. So, this May, the Illinois Department of Health noticed that there was this rise in ED visits for unexplained respiratory failure in young people. And around the same time, Wisconsin had a rash of these cases. Um, And you, you probably are familiar with this and realize that I'm leading up to um, vaping-induced lung disease, where this is, these are some of the the, uh, the resp- uh, uh, images put in the recent New England Journal article about this. So vaping-induced pulmonary injury or vaping-induced you know, lung injury or what whatever acronym you want to use, CDC is using VAPI, um, is a syndrome of respiratory symptoms in patients who vape probably primarily illicit products over the past days to weeks. They often have a prodrome with fever, diarrhea, and weight loss. They have bilateral pulmonary infiltrates in every case that's been reported. They're largely alveolar. Um, and they might have lipid lake and microfaces on BAL, but not all of them do. Um, they might have severe acute lung injury. Some of these cases aren't so bad. We've had a few in Maryland that we've been involved at here, Hopkins, uh, Sinai, um, but uh, you know, some of the cases nationally have been bad enough to require VV ECMO. Um, moderate to high dose steroids might help. Problem: everybody got them. And I think 93% of the, st- the, the cases that we're aware of that have been reported on have gotten steroids. So steroids help. Um, 
we don't know what causes this. We know that it's associated with the use of e-cigarettes. Um, thickening agents such as vitamin E acetate have been implicated, where the idea is if you're selling this stuff, these are usually products, they're THC vaping product for the most part. They're homemade vapes where people will make them themselves. And if they're selling them, if it looks thicker, it looks like they get a better product. So they'll sometimes add thickening agents. And that's where the vitamin E hypothesis has come through. It's not quite proven. Um, it could be that the devices we're using are now higher temperature. They aerosolize uh, compounds to a higher temperature. One of the toxicologists I'm aware of behind whether phosgene uh, you know, World War I gas, which is, you know, a breakdown product of some things, could be a breakdown product of one of these things at high temperature. We truly don't know. Um, <clears throat> there have been over a 1,000 cases so far, 18 deaths, and almost all of the patients are less than 35. The CDC case definition for a confirmed case, uh, you can find that in the New England Journal article. It's essentially you need bilateral infiltrates, um, or pulmonary infiltrates, use of an e-cigarette, and no other good reason for that injury. Um, I suspect that some of these cases are misidentified, but right now we're focusing more on catching them um, than necessarily excluding others. If you have one of these cases and it meets the case you know, definition criteria, there is mandatory reporting just like there is currently for other diseases to Department of so just a few more things to, to finish up the talk with. Uh, these, are, these are more pointers. Approach the poison patient. Uh, don't trust anybody. Short version. Um, and that may not be because your patient's trying to lie to you. People get their drugs mixed up all the time. People have poor recall. People are now altered because of what they took so they don't remember. They might be suicidal and not want to tell you. <clears throat> EKGs, pro, a widened QRS, is typically due to cardiac sodium channel blockade and is best treated with sodium bicarb to decrease the binding of these drugs. If you're extrapolating from TCA data, when your QRS gets above 160, you have a, you know, a moderate to high risk of ventricular arrhythmia, so you don't want to be there. Um, if you have a long QT that is probably due to potassium channel blockade that's seen in a lot of different overdoses, we see very few cases of overdose-induced torsad outside of drugs that cause bradycardia, like sodalol or methadone, uh, or most notorious in the last five years or so, loperamide, where people are taking massive loperamide overdoses in order to get high. It's a fairly potent potassium channel blocker. Um, decontamination is often key. It's not quite as important as it used to be, though, in that Almost every paper that's ever systematically looked at gastric lavage has not found a, you know, a benefit on the overall patient population. I would certainly consider it if someone came in within an hour of a fatal overdose or very severe overdose. If you told me I swallowed my bottle of colchicine tablets, I think gastric lavage would be an excellent management. Um, most of the time we say within an hour, give charcoal. Beyond that, maybe extend and release drugs. That's probably going to be pushed out. Our talks meeting a couple weeks ago, some of the work groups that are working on that suggested that the data are more supportive of charcoal up to three or four hours for many drugs. But, um, you know, wait on that a bit. Um, whole bowel irrigation is good for drugs that don't bind to charcoal, like lithium and iron, or for extend and release drugs that can sit in your gut for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, for skin and eye exposures, even before they come to the hospital, we try to have most of them irrigated for 15 minutes. And then if they come to the ED and they're having significant, you know, pain after, say, an, you know, a splash in their eye of something caustic, you put on the Morgan lens and just flow, saline flow. Um, most of the time, there is nothing we can do to speed the elimination of substances. There is a magical blood spinning machine that can be used to remove some of them. Um, and, you know, we can certainly talk about that later. That's frankly what I love. But most things are not amenable to dialysis or other extracorporeal removal. Most of them are too nonpolar. Um, poisoning, just a quick, you know, a, a, a term. Venomation is when something bites you. A poisoning is when you bite something. Sometimes people get it. Confused. There are lots of antidotes. They have their place. They're not used very frequently, many of them. Some of them are excellent antidotes for infrequently overdosed drugs. Some of them are lousy antidotes. So 
they, they, they have a role. Um, can't really go through them in the, in the scope of this talk. Brain death. This is very important for the intensivist. There are drugs, and I'm thinking mostly of baclofen here, that can mimic brain death nearly perfectly. And when I say nearly perfectly, I mean fail an apnea test and have a flat EEG. Um, I have seen cases that look like severe anoxic injury pattern after quetiapine and uh, lamotrigine overdose that took nine days to clear, during which the family's talking, well, they wouldn't want to live this way. And we're like, no, no, hold off, hold off, hold off. Nine days later, when their toxicokinetics finally wear off, you cannot apply the normal half-life to an overdose because your normal mechanisms of metabolism and elimination get saturated. Um, the patient woke up and had no problems down the line. Um, so how long do you wait? It's really hard to say. But I will caution you that if a patient comes in after an overdose and has completely neuro normal neuroimaging, you should strongly consider that they don't have an oxic brain injury and that maybe it's the drug on board. Um, there are post-mortem cases of people who are withdrawn from care who were found later to have therapeutic barbiturate levels. So, so be careful. Um, <clears throat> and if you're going to pick a, a study, that pick the one that I know is already used here, which is functional testing, so neuro, uh, nuclear medicine. If you have no blood flow in the brain, that, that would be brain death. But outside of it, imaging you know, doesn't tell you much for the tox patient, other than if it's normal, it's concerning you know, for possible drugs. So lastly, I'm going to finish with 10 poisonings that scare me and a one-liner about why. Aspirin scares the heck out of me because these people don't look as sick as they are. And if you ask many toxicologists, I'd be willing to bet that over half of them would cite aspirin as a concern. Um, they come in agitated, tachycardic, sweating, elevated temperature, just like all the cocaines and the, the amphetamines that you've seen do okay. So you give them some benzos, and they're looking calmer, and then they have a seizure and die um, because you've lowered their respiratory rate and allowed more aspirin to go across the blood-brain barrier. Aspirins are very scary. If they are altered, that is a reason to consider dialysis. Well, Butrin XL, um, not only can you get late-onset seizures in your asymptomatic patient, um, you can have cardiogenic shock and major overdose. It is the only bath salt in clinical use. Um, it's a synthetic cathinone. Long-acting opioids, uh, I have unfortunately seen a patient, not, not seen, but been in, uh, involved in the case of, you know, through the poison center, of a patient who was put on a Narcan drip in an ICU in a small hospital and passed away because they weren't you know, watched very carefully. It was thought to be kind of a false, um, you know, it's false security. So don't change any of the stuff you would normally do just because they're on the antidote. TCAs get sick real fast. Um, much like aspirin, uh, at lower pH, they do bad things. Uh, for TCAs, it's primarily they have a seizure, their pH drops, they are they bind more tightly to cardiac sodium channels, and now you're in VFib. Baclofen, brain death thing. Also, um, if somebody's on baclofen chronically after they get extubated after a severe overdose, I start the baclofen back at that point because baclofen withdrawal looks a lot like the worst DTs you'll ever see. Um, hyperthermia up to 40, um, tachycardia, autonomic instability, um, most severe in your intrathecal baclofen pumps that malfunction. And you'll never get your intrathecal levels up high enough with oral dosing, so it's got to be anesthesia and neurosurgery fixing that. Calcium channel blockers, they get very sick. You may have to pull out all the all the stops up to and including ECMO for a severe calcium channel blocker, and don't be afraid of the high-dose insulin drip. When I say high-dose, I mean 1 to 5. Some people go up as high as 10 units per kilo per hour. It is entertaining to be on the other line with somebody and say, I want you to give 80 units IV push of insulin to this hypotensive calcium channel blocker person. The response is usually no. I, I don't want to kill my patient. They're very insulin refractor. They're uh, insulin refractor uh, resistant, and um, they often tolerate it much better than you think. Isoniazid, um, you know, inhibits the synthesis of GABA. And if you don't have GABA, it doesn't matter how many GABA agonists you have on board, with the possible exception of of high dose pentobarb, um, you may have refractory seizures. 
high-dose pyridoxine might be needed. Carbon monoxide, we're coming up on carbon monoxide season. The winter, people start bringing in their their um, uh, uh, gas grills and they start bringing in their generators into the house. It's the great. It's a great imitator. It's easy to misdiagnose. Hydrofluoric acid is a terrifying overdose. Um, it activates cardiac potassium leak channels, causing you to get acutely hyperkalemic, causing the um, the gradient across your cardiac membrane to change and puts you at risk for VFib. It also uh, irreversibly bonds with calcium and magnesium in your, your cells uh, and can cause QTCs as long as the 800s. So you go into bad arrhythmias with these. And lastly, the brain death thing. Um, please call the Poison Center for any case, and we're more than happy to see folks on the MedTox consult service. We talk to each other, so if you've called one, that's probably as good as calling the other, although I would suggest you call a tonsil if you want us to see them. And now happy to answer any questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It uh, It's debated. Magnesium will not shorten your QT. Um, some folks give it to everybody who has a QTC above 500 or 550. Some folks never give it unless they're bradycardic. It's debated. Personally, I would say if you're being cautious, give it above 500 or 550. But it's honestly not evidence-based. <laughs>